Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. So I'm so glad to have uh, Tara Schuster here with me from Los Angeles. Welcome to my podcast, Tara. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really happy to see you, to hear you, because we are on, on, on audio, of course. But this is uh, thanks to our mutual friend, Adam Grant, who connected us. So I'm yes. happy for that. Adam is, Adam is the great connector. He he seem he has a way of connecting people, and it's so cool to connect with you from Los Angeles to Italy, especially in this crazy time. Yeah, really. And and just as a short intro, Tara Schuster is an author, playwright, and entertainment executive, serving as vice president of talent and development at Comedy Central, and she's currently the executive in charge of Lights Out with David Spade was the executive in charge of the Emmy and Peabody award-winning Key and Peele and the Emmy award-winning At Midnight and numerous other shows. And her book, By Yourself and Fucking Lilies, debuted at number one in new releases in both self-help and humor essays on both Amazon, Kindle and Audible. Tara, can, can I kick off by asking you about uh, uh, the world that I think many don't know of? Being a playwright and entertainment executive uh, what does that really mean in, in practical terms? Yeah, it's been interesting. I went to school for playwriting, um, and I, I went to college for writing um, more generally. And when I graduated, I realized that it just wasn't financially possible to be a playwright. I was told that was a job in college. It is very much not a job. Um, unless you're David Mamet or someone of that stature. And so I sort of quickly pivoted into television um, with by interning at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, just to find out more about, you know, what it, even is this industry? Because I'd been so focused on plays since I was in high school. And what I kind of realized was everyone said, you have to pick a lane. You can only do one thing. Are you going to be in TV? Or are you going to be a playwright? Are you going to be write humorous essays? Or are you going to be an executive? And I always just rejected that and said, maybe that's true of you, but it's not true of me. And so even as I climbed the corporate ladder at Comedy Central, I kept putting on plays in New York. I I would just divide my time so that I wrote in the mornings, you know, had rehearsals after work. And it was definitely a very full schedule, you know, because on top of that, in entertainment, it's a lot of, it's very relational. So you're having, you know, lots of drinks and lots of lunches and trying to, to meet people. But it just, for me, it was never an option not to explore my creativity while also having um, a more corporate job. So the practical of it was, you know, I just learned to wake up early and to really <laughs> manage my time. Nowadays, what, what is, if there is any kind of standard day for you, what is it like? Yeah, the standard day for me is I wake up um, early. So for me, early is around six. And between the hours of six to 9 a.m., I am a writer. 
and I chain myself to my desk. I set a timer on my phone and hour by hour, I hit, hit those alarms. Um, minimum I write is probably an hour. Sometimes I can get in the two to three hour range, but they're really focused. So there's no emailing, no Instagram, no online shopping, nobody talking to me, um, purely writing. And then once I'm done writing, I usually do some kind of workout to sort of change the gears of my mind before going into the office. And for the rest of the day, I, you know, work at entertainment where I am meeting artists, directors, writers, all kinds of people to figure out how we can work with them at Comedy Central. And that's how I divide my day between this creative side of me and the more um, business oriented side of me. Mm -hmm. and, and when you say writing, is it writing scripts or... Right now, it's, um, you know, I, I just um, had my first book come out. So for the past three years, it's been the book, which I wrote in that manner by writing before work and then writing during the weekends. What I realized very early on was I just couldn't write at night, that I was so burnt out from work that the, 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 the last thing I wanted to do was write after a full day at the office. So the morning is sort of when I'm my most creative and my, my freshest. So I always save that for writing. And right now I'm working on my proposal for my second book. So that's mostly what that sort of where my creativity is finding its greatest outlet. But if you could choose, uh, would you only write? Hmm. It's a really good question. It's a complicated answer because I'm not sure I would have written a book if I didn't have this job, actually, because a, a couple things, you know, first off, very practically, I enjoy my, my job. I have been at Comedy Central for almost 11 years. I really love meeting artists and helping them achieve their goals. And it gives me a stability. Um, you know, Adam Grant writes in Originals that having a sense of safety and security in one realm gives us the freedom to take risks in another. So I think having a really secure baseline in my career gave me the freedom to take a risk in doing something like releasing a memoir. So I don't know is the is the answer to would I like to do one full-time Because the other thing I would say is that because I'm so aware of looking for point of view and authenticity in artists, you know, when I look at something they've made or a script they've written, I'm looking for their DNA, for their thumbprint. That's what makes a, a piece of creative work really sing and, and unique. I'm so good at identifying it in others that I've been able to be really rigorous with myself about making sure I'm showing up as my most authentic, honest self when I'm writing. So I don't, I don't know that I'd have that skill if I hadn't approached writing from this sort of um, two-career path. Interesting. And I, I read the uh, Adam's actually comment on, uh, on your book, uh, where he's endorsing it. And he says, it's bracingly honest, funny read that will make you feel you're not alone. And uh, he says that your reflections offer hope for millennials. 
that if your parents didn't quite ace their roles, it's not too late to reparent yourself. <laughs> Which leads me to the question, actually, who, the book, when you wrote it, was it written for millennials or is it like any, for anyone? Yeah, that's so, so funny. I was so lucky to get that endorsement from Adam and, and sort of forever grateful for his advice over the years. But I, I would say this book is for anyone. And I certainly didn't write it with millennials in mind in particular. I think some of the language I use is a little, is very casual. So what I've had um, older readers say to me, it's funny, they'll say, I know this book wasn't meant for me, but I loved it. And I took away so much and I felt like I had a friend's. And also men say that to me a lot. They say, I know I'm not the target audience for this, but I loved it and and I felt less alone and I, I have some practical things to take into my life. And what's funny is just that they, because I use sort of current language, and I think that's really where it comes from, is that, like I use some abbreviations and some internet speak for, you know, mostly for comedic effect and because that's how I communicate because I am a millennial. But it's funny that they immediately throw up, I know this isn't for me. And then, but I love it. So that's been really satisfying, actually, is the range of people who this book is, that this book has touched and reached. And I see it, you know, now that we have analytical tools and things like our social media accounts, you would expect that all of my followers on Instagram, for example, would be like young women. But that's not true at all. It's a large age range and then pretty fairly divided amongst men and women. So it turns out that many ages and many genders want a little help and to feel like they have a friend who can give them practical advice on what real self-care means. And, And that's really what the book is about, about taking our lives seriously and finding the habits and rituals that actually take care of ourselves. And I was just curious when you mentioned that you're uh, in the book also using expressions and and language that is more uh, for the younger ones. And and, uh, is there anything that you could uh, like share one, two or three things that that people can learn from you as you're on the line. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, Internet Speak. Yeah, like the one that comes to mind the most is the abbreviation RN, which means right now. I have had um, so many, when, when I had early readers reading the book, a friend of mine who's a friend of Adam, Sarah Hurwitz, who wrote an incredible book about Judaism last year, um, and she was also Michelle Obama's speechwriter her first note to me is, what is RN? Like, what is what does that mean? And it means right now, right now. And then AF, which do you know AF? Uh, no. That is as fuck. So I'm tired AF or I'm stressed <laughs> out AF. Those two come to mind. Okay. But how, um, how can we become more self-aware? You know, it's interesting because I think that is what underlies everything in the book is I grew up in a household where my parents were not self-aware in any kind of way. It was almost like their lives were happening to them and they were just the victims of whatever new crisis was coming around the corner. 
And when you see that growing up, I think you have a couple of choices. One is just to pattern that in your own life and and just continue down the road. But another is to see, I don't want that. I don't want to be asleep for my life. And that's what I chose. And I think the tool that helped me the most with building self-awareness is journaling. And I picked up journaling from a book by, um, she's sort of a creativity thought leader, uh, Julia Cameron. She wrote The Artist's Way. Have you, do you know that book? Do you know her? No. It's it's a little woo-woo and it was, uh, you know, I think it was written in like the 70s or something, but it's gone through many reprintings. And basically she has a practice in it called the morning pages where the first thing when you get up, you freehand write three pages of just whatever's on your mind when you first wake up before you do anything else, before you get input from anybody else, just where are you today? And I sort of turned that into my own journaling practice, which I've been doing for the past nine-ish years, which is every morning I get up and the first thing I do is I write these three pages and they really get you in touch with what you what you think, what you believe, what narratives you're telling yourself. And I think very often we get caught in our heads, we get lost in thought. And, and, and in thought, you can go down all kinds of rabbit holes. But in writing, you have to be present. It's a very physical act. You can capture your thoughts and imprison them on the page so that you can actually see what you're dealing with. And so for me, journaling has been by far the most effective tool in building self-awareness. And self-awareness is the base of so many other amazing tools to, to help us be the people we want to be, to help us be more authentic to the people we are. I mean, self-awareness is a gateway to so many excellent things that you can sort of change about yourself or at least be aware of. Yeah. And one thing that I, I find so many people do, even verbally, uh, I sometimes, uh, if they're my you know friends and so on, I tell them, don't insult yourself, you know, like they're not even aware that they're doing it, you know? Oh, yeah. I write a lot about, I call it the frenemy within. So my book is in the intersection of self-help, humor and memoir. And I think all memoir to some extent is self-help because you are reading how it how a person navigated the world. A person worth worth listening to. You're 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 learning how to, how did they do that? What's their story? And across memoirs and across self-help books, you find this idea of an inner critic. You know, that's no, that's no, nothing new that I'm talking about like an inner critic. But my approach to it is instead of trying to suppress the inner critic and saying, you know, no, is to say yes, and to allow those thoughts to exist, and to write them down, and then to very methodically write next to those mean critical thoughts why they are not true. Because there is such a difference between the truth and a belief. You know, many people have extremely self-limiting beliefs that they don't even know how they got implanted in their brains, but they're operating in a constant diss track, 
just in, in their mind, the soundtrack is, I am bad. This is a mistake I made. I can't believe I said that in front of my boss. And what I encourage people to do is to write down all of those sort of insults so that you you acknowledge what is real, you acknowledge what you believe, but then you write down the truth right next to it. And that way you can also see, oh, just because I screwed up in the office last week doesn't make me a complete moron, bad at work, going to get in trouble. In that one moment, I just wasn't my best. No big deal. Moving on. I think we are very good at being mean to ourselves and treating ourselves with such little care. I mean, shocking because we'll treat a guest 10 times better than we'll treat ourselves. And that the, that the whole world would be in a much better place if people actually took care of themselves, if they actually took themselves seriously, if they did the work to be kind to themselves, because there would be no reason to put down others. You know, if you are happy with yourself and you feel good, you don't lash out. I've never met a person who was fundamentally content and peaceful with who they were who were also a jerk to everybody else. Like those two things don't exist. The the people who are unkind and cruel and the guy you avoid at work, we all know that the reason they're doing that is because they are not happy in their interior. And so if we had if we had people who were more content, who were not mean to themselves, they just wouldn't have a reason to be cruel to others. And that's what I you know, self-care is important because we're all worth taking care of ourselves, but it's also important because that's what builds our communities. Mm. And, and I would dream of having, you know, these modules of these, let's say, exercises and, and uh, input during, you know, during school, during education, to talk about these things, uh, to conquer this self-doubt very early on so, the, so that kids and, and young people can, you know, breathe and be kind and enjoy the one life they're given, you know? Absolutely. I, I, that is, that, that would be amazing. <laughs> but uh, Tara, going back to you um, in terms of passion, um, and passion comes from this Latin word, patire, which is really to suffer. So, which means what are, what are you really passionate about so much so that you are also willing to suffer for it if needed? Mm, that's a great question. I love that. I am really passionate about the idea that we need to unlearn cruelty that frankly for me to put out a memoir that is also self-helpy in nature was a big risk to my career and a big sacrifice because we want our executives to some of us want our executives to be shiny perfect people with no flaws and certainly no humanity you know, at least in my experience, we don't see each other's kids at work. You don't bring in your dogs. You don't talk about your outside life. That exists in the home. And at work, you are your work self and, and you know, buttoned up and everything's perfect. But for me, the idea that I could be helpful to people and give them a roadmap for self-care by sharing some of my, you know, I, I grew up in a neglected house and, and that sort of and went through a very neglected childhood. By revealing that, by revealing 
my flaws and being really vulnerable, I wanted to show people that there was strength in that, that there's strength in owning your narrative and showing up as your whole self. And so it was a, a risk. I mean, people, even at the time, right before the book was published, asked, you know, what are people going to think of you? Are people going to think less of you? Are, are people going to want to work with you? There's a lot of questioning. And I am so passionate about this idea that we need to unlearn that we are worthless because there are a lot. And now that I'm sort of talking to the people in public, I'm realizing more and more what a pandemic of worthlessness we have and really negative self-talk and low, low self-esteem. And, you know, no wonder anxiety, depression, and suicide are at catastrophic levels in the United States. People are really unhappy inside and, and they don't have the tools to take care of themselves and they don't have the tools to be gentle with themselves. And so I would risk anything to be a person who makes other people feel less alone and who can give practical tips on how do we climb out from, from that? How do we get in the sunlight? And how do we ultimately treat each other with a little more gentleness and a little more kindness? Hmm. But I know a lot of people who are feeling like they're not enough and, and having these self-doubts and all of that, but they don't have a very, how can I say, particular reason. They said, okay, it's, it was my upbringing or it was this that happened or whatever. There's nothing like that very concrete linked to this. It's just a general feeling that people have. It's like a general virus. <laughs> so I'm, th and I'm thinking, why? What is it in our societies that are, is, is creating that kind of general I'm not enough virus? Yeah, I mean, and I definitely, my book is not just for those who had a traumatic childhood. It's for basically anybody who struggles with that I'm not enough. It's just I use personal stories from that perspective to sort of paint the picture. But I think you're really on to something, which is we have been... I think we have become conditioned to be in a culture of productivity at the expense of everything else. I mean, for the past five years, I'd say maybe past 10 years, I've noticed that people's vacations, like their free time, I don't know if your friends would do this to you, but they'd send me Google Docs of exactly how they were going to spend, you know, if they're in Mexico City, 8 a.m., we're getting, you know, this kind of taco at this exact place and it's the best place. And I researched it across three other places. And then the whole day is scheduled to optimize, maximize, eke out the best that we have to have the best because I look around and I'm, I'm seeing the best and making sure that you didn't miss out, you know, FOMO, like you, you didn't miss out on whatever the experience is, has left us extremely stressed out. And so I think we've gone wrong. We've definitely gone wrong in our pursuit for productivity and the idea that we can optimize everything or that we should. I mean, I think it's better in a sense to not always have the quote unquote best experience because then you are able to recognize when something is exceptional. 
we've lost track of the idea that not every experience has to be exceptional. Not every product you put out there has to hit it out of the park because you learn from, from those failures, from the, from the experiences where things didn't go just as you planned. That, that's where you get your strength. So if we're all just these like optimized robots following schedules and plans and doing what everyone else says is the best and buying what everyone else says is the best, we actually lose the ability to know what's right for us. We lose that innate ability to understand our own preferences and what we'd actually like from our lives and what kind of person do I want to be. And so I think maybe we've fallen into a sort of group think abyss of of everything is optimized. And and I think that is really contributing to the I am not enough. Because if you're stuck in that mindset, how would you ever be enough? What goalpost would ever be enough? And the only thing I'd add to that is a sort of relentless drive to validate ourselves. You know, so if what's driving us is that the consumer, the consumer's point of view, what your mom thinks about you, what your friend thinks about you, choose any external factor. If that is all that is driving you, nothing will ever be enough because you can't control those things. You absolutely cannot control other people's reactions to anything. So in our relentless pursuit for external validation, we've lost sight with the fact that validation actually comes from within, always. And, and I think that actually applies to business and products. It certainly applies to Comedy Central. If I was just pursuing what I thought audiences would like, and if I was completely hell-bent on future casting their reactions, we wouldn't make anything of quality because we can't guess what someone else will like. I can make the highest quality product I possibly can that I myself would watch, that other artists respect, and that the artist themselves feels is extremely authentic. But the idea that I could completely cater to what the audience wants, sometimes they don't know what they want. Did they know they wanted Key and Peele? No. Did they know they wanted Chappelle? No. We just chose the artist who is most authentically expressing themselves, gave them the tools to make the best product possible and knew that the audience would come. And sure enough, they did. And, and about this uh, not, not enough uh, uh, syndrome, uh, I just want to say that one of, of my insights over the past, uh, I don't know, a decade or so is that I realized more and more that people don't care about it anybody else than themselves. I don't want to say that they are egoistic. That's not the point. But we, we think that somebody's going to think something about us, particularly what we did, what we said, how we behaved, how we looked, whatever. But people don't. They're so into their own world, into their own bubble, uh, you know? Absolutely. So, so it's insane. If we just keep thinking about the fact that they don't care about us, they care about what can we give them of value that is meaningful or valuable to, for them. I could not agree more. I actually have an entire chapter in my book called, the chapter is Nobody Cares at All in Regards oh, yeah. to Everything. Yeah. Oh, good. Nobody cares. They're just not thinking about us. 
we spend so much of our time spinning stories in our head about what other people think about us when the truth is they're not thinking about us at all because they're in their heads spinning stories about what other people think of them. So yeah, it doesn't even make sense to worry about them because they really aren't thinking about us. What about transformational points in your life? Obviously, we heard already a little bit about, of course, your family uh, situation before and so on. But is there anything else you want to add on that note that has influenced you a lot? Yeah, I think for me, working on Key and Peel was a huge transformational moment because it was the first time I had worked with artists who were not only geniuses, but were also incredibly kind. And to watch how they moved through the world, you know, they knew everybody's name on set. They asked questions. They were present. They were real adults and leaders. To get back to kind of what you were, we've been talking about, um, I don't remember if we talked about it right before we got on or on the podcast, but that perhaps there's a leadership vacuum right now. And to watch how they were brought them their whole selves and were holistic leaders on that set and that they led with kindness. Because on a set, you can lead with, you can make everyone afraid of you or you can make everybody feel comfortable. And a lot of stars and directors lead with fear. You know, I'm the director, do what I say, very top-down approach. But The reason that show is so good is because they motivated everybody to give their best and everybody to show up passionately. So seeing them model that kind of leadership, I realized that's the kind of leader I want to be. Is there like a long-term formula that you would say exists for businesses that you believe in, like a common denominator? Yeah, I mean, I think and what I hope is, what I think I'm witnessing is that businesses are becoming more self-aware that they are active participants in the culture, not just a commercial enterprise, and that there's a responsibility that comes with that. And it seems to me that we're moving more in that direction, especially, you know, in the pandemic, companies have stood up. And, and I hope that it doesn't come down to corporate entities are the ones that are going to need to, like, quote unquote, save us. But they've definitely, I mean, I've seen even, you know, within the fashion industry, something small, like people pivoting to make face masks and protective gear and corporations saying, okay, we're not going to lay off these workers and we're going to provide health insurance. You know, they're having to make real choices about their responsibility. And, and I hope that that's sort of the direction that we're moving in. Yeah, definitely. And, and even bigger companies are at least talking about sharing data and, and learnings and, and stuff like that, that before was, was never to be, you know, even touched as an argument. Like I think the other day, Microsoft was getting going out with, with, a, with something around, around that, how they're going to open up data so that other people can share and learn from it and so on, so that we speed up uh, the learning process and, and, and growth of, of, for everyone. If you would assume and dream a little bit that you have all, do all doors open to you and all resources available, is there anything in particular that you would rush to innovate or change, you know, whether it is in within your world or somewhere else? Yeah, I think my eyes were kind of closed to the disparities in opportunity in this country, at least. 
and how we kind of, if you're born poor, you are likely to continue to be poor and that the dream of, well, if you just work your hardest, you can get ahead, that that is not real for many people. So I think for me, it would be something, and I don't fully have this baked out, but where there was more equity for opportunity, where we helped get everyone at a level playing field for opportunity, whether that's in, I think, the education system. If, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and went to private schools, because if you were an a person of means in in the mid 80s, you would never send your kids to public school because it was not an education. I mean, it's insane that that the, you know, and, and that set me off to go to an Ivy League school, which set me off to be able to work at a place like Comedy Central. And the idea that that is simply because my parents had the means to do that, that it, I have nothing to do with that, that I was just lucky. I think we need to fundamentally make more, even that playing field so that there's more equity and opportunities. So that's, if if I could pull all the levers, it would be like a dramatic expansion of education and the quality of education probably in the U.S. Yeah, and it's in the U.S. it's very much so, (laughs) much more than many other places. So definitely needed, yeah. And... um, Leaders, how how would you actually define a leader? I think a leader models the best of how we move forward and how we comport ourselves and, and how we act as humans, not only in the workplace, but in our lives. They show us um, how it could be. And you know, when I think of the most effective leaders at my own job, they are authentic. They are themselves. They have empathy. They're empathetic people who don't just view the world through the prism of me, but are willing to put themselves in the shoes of of their employees. And they have a, a sort of vision, both in terms of business, you know, what are the business objectives? What are the goals? But in terms of how do we do those things and what's the culture that gets us there, that the culture is important and that the way you treat the people working on the project is incredibly important and that it, it is tied up in the results. So I think a, a leader is somebody who's able to show us you know, what's possible. And at this exact moment in history, we are all called to be leaders because we can all be leaders in different ways. You know, there's so many different values that we can all be modeling and working on to lead us forward. And I I think we need people to step up to the plate and be authentic and have a vision more than ever. I was thinking about you like 10, 15 or so years ago. Is there anything in particular that you would give as an advice to yourself thinking back? Yeah, I would say, (laughs) and this is something I remind myself even today, you know, be gentle, you know, be gentle with myself and, and others, because I think I fell into a trap of hustle, that the hustle is the most important thing. And 
anybody that I work with would tell you I am a hustler to the extreme. You know, you can't have two careers and you can't have a book at Random House and a corporate job if you're not hustling to some extent. But the hustle can't become who you are. And at some point, it's diminishing returns because you're so exhausted by the grind that you are no longer inspired, you're not creative, you can't come up with novel ideas because you're just spent. You know, and I, I know people talk a lot about burnout, but this is a little different. This is about being gentle with yourself and not always needing to push it to 10, but instead sometimes stepping back and saying, do I really need to hustle on this one thing? Or is it driving me insane and diminishing returns and I should just bail on it? And hopefully it's a long life and hopefully I don't have to achieve all of my goals immediately because it, then it becomes hard to achieve anything at all. When, you, when, when everything needs to be won and you need to be the best right this second, it becomes hard just to even be good because you're so obsessed with um, what's the product, what's it going to be down the road that you completely miss out on the moment where you actually are, which is the only thing guaranteed. So this is a long way of rambling that I wish I could have told myself to be a little easier on myself because I think I think I might have even achieved more had I just been a little looser, a little nicer, a little more gentle with myself. If you are good at, as you say, taking care of yourself and, and are at the point of life where you are right now, does that necessarily mean that you almost nowadays never feel like uh, lonely? Or, or Yeah, it doesn't mean that I never feel lonely. I certainly feel lonely, but it does mean that I have tools to very quickly connect myself back to the community. I'm self-aware enough that I can really sense. And I mean, I get a feeling in my body. I'm like, oh, right, loneliness. Here's exactly what I need to do. So it's no longer, it's like second nature to me to when I'm feeling that, then take the the action because it's it's a habit now. What do you do? So what I do is I either go to temple. That's a big one. I'll go to a temp, temple to go to a service simply to be in a community and to be in a community of people. I'm not that religious. It's just shared beliefs, communal, like singing, like it's very communal Or I have a couple of different friends who I've had transparent conversations with about loneliness. And so we're all kind of on the same page of if one of us is experiencing this, let's reach out and talk about it. So I'll, it's, I'll usually do one of those, those uh, two things. But, it, but I have a plan. I think a lot of people are not self-aware enough to even know that they're feeling lonely, much less, well, what do you do about it? But if you can come up with a plan and a habit, then you can come back to it forever, you know, and pretty quickly get yourself out of that feeling disconnected. And and going back to companies uh, that still are a very important instrument for all of us, what do you think is the most important thing that they can do? and focus on right right now? I think 
And what I hope is that we're moving towards a more community-oriented model of growth that not everything can be ruthless and at the expense of every other system in order to eke out profits. You know, um, the recent, what is it, the head of BlackRock, who has been talking about short-term profits can no longer be the benchmark by which everything is possibly measured, you know, talking about um, moving away from fossil fuels, essentially a long-term vision. Somehow we've gotten in very short-sighted thinking and the, the greatest companies in the world were not quick fix. This is an app that like <laughs> has actually no value in the real world but is a very quick fix, a very, um, you know, we can give our consumers a dopamine hit of addiction on their phone or something. Those aren't like the great companies that built such a peaceful and thriving economy. And so I think and I hope that what we're moving towards is a more long-term vision of how companies can sustain themselves, how they can be built into the fabric of the culture in a, in a meaningful way that is both profitable and lasting. So true. I totally, totally agree. My final question to you, Tara, is what do you think the world needs most at this uh, time? Mm. Caring and connection. You know, we are right now talking in, in a global pandemic um, where everyone is affected. And I think the world needs to care a lot more about its fellow citizens. And if there's one silver lining, I hope that it's we understand like we actually are all in the world together. And in such a globalized economy, what happens in Italy absolutely affects what happens in America. And and we're even seeing on a much more physical level that, you know, just by traveling like how connected, you know, as, as the virus spread, how really connected we all are. And I hope that we increase our caring for our fellow travelers on this planet, because I think we need it more than ever. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for, for sharing everything. Is it, is it anything, this is off record now, is there anything you... We need to include more or if no i loved i loved this conversation thank you so much for having me I, I i think your questions are so thoughtful and these are the conversations that really need to be had so just thank you thank you so much to uh, find out more people could head to your uh, website right uh, tarashuster.com and I have a newsletter there where I kind of send out um, once a week a self-care tip or a self-care thought that is really practical. So if you want practical, easy to implement, kind of honest thoughts that way, um, you can sign up on my website. Great. And also uh, remember to subscribe to uh, the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast and share this episode with people you know who would benefit from hearing Tara. And also you'll find links and show notes on uh, corporateunplugged.com. 
And please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao. Ciao, Tara. Ciao. Ciao.